This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. So where'd you get it from anyway? Apparently it was the hand of someone who could connect with the dead. I heard it was the hand of a Satanist. And the other hand's just out there. White people shit, man, I tell you. <laughs> All right, let's do this! You know the drill. Say, talk to me. Talk to me. Haley, fucking stop it, he's choking! 83 seconds, get it off him! Students, welcome to another very special episode of Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Eric Winnick. I'm Bradford Lorick. And like many very special episodes, today we will be venturing into the spirit world to discover what and who lies Beyond, Beyond the, the known, known universe. universe. And if you don't mind, sir, I'd like to give you a hand with that. You. We like to call this podcast Scare You because tonight, three of us are going back to school to experience something new. And we three amigos will be discussing a horror film we hadn't seen yet. At least. Not until very recently. Joining us tonight to discuss the film Talk to Me all the way from sunny Los Angeles, California, is one of our favorite guests making her third appearance on Scare You, Gretchen McNeil. Hello, Ms. M. Hello, I'm so honored to be back and I am ready to do some hand stuff. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I am... I'm so offended by that, Gretchen. My God, my virgin ears. <laughs> How dare you, sir? How dare you? I'm sure all of you know Gretchen from her appearances on our episodes on April Fool's Day and The Mist. But for the two or three of you unfamiliar, Gretchen is the author of several young adult novels, including Dig Two Graves, Possess, 359, Relic, Get Even, Get Dirty, and Ten, as well as the horror comedy novels Hashtag Murder Trending, Hashtag Murder Funding, 
and hashtag no escape. I get a thrill every time hearing it. Bless you. Um, her most recent novel is Three Drops of Blood, pitched as a YA rear window. And she has yet another book in the works titled They Fear Not Men in the Woods. Ten, Murder Island, the film adaptation of Ten, premiered on Lifetime, and Get Even and Get Dirty have been adapted as the series Get Even and Rebel Cheer Squad, a Get Even series for the BBC and Netflix. So how are you, lady? And what have you been up to since our last foray? Well, I've been listening to Scare You Obsessively. It's my oh. my mor- Monday morning ritual. It takes me like four days to get through an episode because I have so little free time. But um, it's such a joy to have on while I'm in the kitchen preparing family breakfast and lunch. Um, that's all I do. I just listen to scare you and prepare food. Oh my that's God, it. I am squealing <laughs> on the inside. <laughs> The nicest no, thing I anyone just, said I to us. The, right, that, I, that my sad, I'm like cutting up sad little pieces of fruit while I listen to your podcast. Um, but I have just recently finished They Fear Not Men in the Woods, which is my first adult horror novel. It does not yet have a home, but we are hoping to remedy that in the next few months. Oh, baby, Gretchen. it's got a home in my black little heart already. I cannot wait. <laughs> Gretchen, in writing an adult novel, does this mean you were able to sort of get out a lot of the like stuff that you weren't able to put in your YA novels, like the word fuck? Well, I do use the word fuck quite liberally in my young adult, um, oh. but you have to be a little more conscientious about how you use it. Right. Um, mostly that it stays in dialogue as opposed to internal monologue. Um mm. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's used much more for effect than just sort of an internalized way of thinking, at least for my young adult characters. So in writing an adult character, and look, she's like 24, so she's barely an adult. I think I wasn't an adult till I was in my mid-30s. Um, mm. But I'm able to sort of use someone who has experienced a little bit more of life, a little bit more jaded, a little bit angrier. Not that teens aren't angry, but this character has some uh, some anger issues. Uh, and it's it's a slightly different voice. And then, of course, the characters around her are all adults living adult lives and going through adult problems. And so it definitely has a different voice and a different tone than my young adult novels. You know, my, my scare you hallway crush Gretchen McNeil does go pretty far in her YA writing. They're gory. They're gory. This one, this one has, um, I don't want to spoil it, but it has some, uh, some disembowelments, um, that are pretty graphically described that I may or may not have had to tone down. I mean, the hashtag murder trending series is pretty gory, but, um, there's also a heavy level of comedy and satire in it, which I think mitigates the violence somewhat that uh, does not really exist in in this adult novel. All right. Um, so, uh, Ms. McNeil, the first time we spoke, and I'm going to Cliff's notes this here for uh, our listeners who may not be blessed with my eidetic memory. Um, when we asked you about your history with the horror genre, you told us that as a Gen Xer, you were from Generation Sleepover Party and all that mm-hmm. that 
entrails. Um, meaning that you watched April Fool's Day, American Werewolf in London, and The Exorcist when you were growing up, and that your favorite horror film is John Carpenter's The Thing, which inspired your book Relic. Yes. Um, and the last time, you told us that you just discovered the classic film The Uninvited. Is there anything new or recent that you've enjoyed since the last time we spoke, which was way back in February? Um, well, I'm going to give you guys some credit here because I listened to your episode on Ready or Not, which is a movie I had not only not seen, but never even heard of somehow. I don't know. And uh, I watched it and I I had um, I had great love for um, the main character. I know she's Hugo Weaving's daughter and I can't remember her. Samara. Samara, yeah. thank you. She was fantastic. Um, the dress as yes. a character, the wedding dress as a character. Oh, was such yeah. a fabulous thing. I had it in my mind from listening to your episode and sort of watching it and its evolution I thought was really fantastic. So I'm discovering new things from you guys. So uh, a big old oh. thank you. Oh, whoever said learning was wrong. I went back to school. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. Hey, listen, guys, I think we'd be remiss at this point not to point out that we have just lost another member of the horror community this week. Uh, William Friedkin, the director of such films as The French Connection, Sorcerer, To Live and Die in L.A., and, and oh yeah, a little ditty that we like to call The Exorcist, one of Gretchen's sleepover favorites, uh, died this week at the age of 87. Um, so I just want to say rest in peace. Thanks, Kay Kaiser. Hey, Mr. Winnick, will you hand us one of your patented, brief, spoiler-free synopses? Oh, oh, so you can do it, but I can't. Okay, uh -huh. I, I see how it is. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. All right, all right, all right. So, you know what? Let's, let's fire up some music by composer Cornell Wilczek. And this is a piece that I like to call, I Let You In. Hey, who doesn't love a party? And what's better at a party than a good party game? Especially one that involves grasping the hand at the end of a plaster of Paris arm and intoning the words, talk, talk to me. me. Now for the full effect, you say the words, I let you in, allowing yourself to be fully possessed by whatever lies beyond the spirit realm. It's terrifying, sure, but it's also a total rush, provided you keep it under 90 seconds. That's what happens to Mia, anyway, when she's dared by her friends to take hold of the hand. And Mia's had it rough lately. She recently lost her mother for reasons yet unexplained, and her bestie Jade's little brother Riley keeps tagging along with them to parties. Jade and Riley's mom is concerned the kids might be into something nasty, like pot or booze. Little does she know, the kids are into something much worse much more addictive. When one of their experiments goes too far, all hell breaks loose, unleashing spirits best left undisturbed. 
Well done, Mr. Winnick. Uh, so why don't we tell everybody who was responsible for the making of this film? Well, thank you, sir. Uh, yes, so uh, this film was directed by Danny and Michael Filippo from a script by Danny Filippo and Bill Hinsman. Uh, now, if you're not already aware, the Filippos are Australian twins who got their start as YouTube sensations Racka Racka, uh, a channel that stretches back over 10 years and features some absolutely bonkers videos with wild special effects. And and let me just say now, I, I, I think the Filippos have been interviewed on every major podcast out there in the last week. Uh, we, we will not be featuring them on this one. And Bradford, you can thank me later. Yeah, I'll, I'll just thank you now. Um, if you haven't heard them, these guys are nuts. Their energy level is off the charts, and I know for a fact it would totally do me in. Um, anyway, this film features a full-on Australian cast, including the incandescent Sophie Wilde, who is not to be confused with Olivia Wilde, or Olivia Cook, or for that matter, Amelia Clark. No, this is Sophie Wilde, who plays Mia. And as both actor and character, she is about to break wide open. No question about it. Um, this film, which was snatched up by A24 after winning over audiences this year at Sundance, also stars the Lord of the Rings Miranda Otto as Sue, mother of Jade, Mia's bestie, played by Alexandra Jensen, and Riley, played by the remarkable Joe Bird. Um, there's also Otis Donji as Jade's sort of boyfriend, Daniel, and the film's quote-unquote antagonists, Joss, played by Chris Elosio, and Haley, played by Zoe Tarakis. All right, now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. Uh, so Talk to Me opened very recently, at least from the date of recording, on July 28th, 2023. Uh, it was made for $4.5 million. And as of right now, a sequel is in the works. Talk to Me. Yep, that's the number two in place of the word two. Jeanette Katsoulis of a little rag we like to call the New York Times in a review titled let the wrong one in, gave Talk To Me a much-coveted critic's pick, gushing, quote, distinguished by its wonderfully gooey practical effects and deeply distressing visual jolts. The film has a hurtling energy that's often violent, but never purposefully cruel. The film's ideas are not novel or even fully formed. The narrative has more holes than a lace doily. Yet by choosing simplicity over specifics, the filmmakers free themselves from the weight of words and open up space for a mood of intense disquiet and unusual sensitivity. You know, I have to say my favorite part of that Times review, as as is the case with many Times reviews, is the justification for the rating at the bottom, which mm -hmm. I think I texted to you guys. Um, in this case, uh, Jeanette says, and these are not big spoilers, rated R for dog snogging, toe sucking, and stabbing, stabbing, stabbing. Uh, I love that. Writing in The Guardian... Fusty old Mark Kermode in a review titled An Evil Dead for the Snapchat Generation said, 
There are plenty of familiar demon-eyed theatrics and visceral physical shocks in Talk to Me, some of which will make you shudder and shriek. But beneath the shiversome and at times derivative surface, there are darker forces at work, echoing real-life videos of kids filming each other having bad drug trips, then posting them online. Like Bill Gunn's 1973 black vampire cult classic Ganja and Hess, the supernatural elements of Talk to Me may be its main selling point, but it's the down-to-earth aspects that bite. Brian Tallarico writing on RogerEbert.com, but let's face it, a cheap imitation of old Jawbone McCoy writes that Talk to Me is, quote, a great idea that starts with a ton of promise, but the Filippos lose some of their momentum after a stunning sequence in which a possession goes horribly awry. Uh, From there, they spin their wheels too much, losing the rising tension that needs to be part of a movie like this one, Still, the performances are strong and the directors have a visual language that doesn't overtly reveal their YouTube background, blending both old-fashioned horror storytelling with daringly new ideas. I'd like to show Brian the back of my hand. That's fine. Just don't get too handsy. You guys are really stretching this one out. I gotta hand it to you. So, um... So, Professor, you, obviously, uh, you didn't assign this film. It just opened. We heard about it. We called Ms. McNeil. We decided to see it. So this is going to be a little different from the usual thing. But could you talk a, a bit in non-spoilerific detail about where you feel Talk to Me fits into the horror pantheon? Yeah, I can give that a whirl. Um, and I would welcome Gretchen to jump in if uh, if I'm missing anything. Um, but I think Talk to Me is, is kind of the story of Reagan McNeil if she chatted up Captain Howdy using W.W. Um, Jacobs's monkey's paw. Um, I think it fits squarely into the um, teens fuck around with the paranormal and get fucked by the paranormal subgenre, which um, isn't really a real thing, but it might as well be. Um, And of course, in these films, teenagers apparently live in a world bereft of horror films, uh, as they seem to know nothing about the concept of playing stupid games and winning stupid prizes. Um, and, you know, of course, The Exorcist may be the progenitor of all of them. Uh, and, and the classic ingredients in this kind of story are a um, typically a young person with a missing piece, uh, some kind of mechanism of communication, and an evil force uh, who effectively offers to make them whole again, but works toward their undoing instead. Um, Which always seemed kind of counterintuitive to me because, uh, you know, clearly in that situation, I would be all in. I'd be all, you know, you want to do what now? Take over my body and my soul, make me suffer unspeakably. Uh, you know, can can we just skip to the part where I have the unlimited evil powers and can float around in my bedroom? You know, because I'm, I'm 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 sort of like Doctor Faustus like that, lighting all the lights. Um, 
And I think that is probably definitely the first Gertrude Stein reference here at Scare You, but we all highbrow on this podcast. Um, I think the Evil Dead films and certainly their successor Cabin in the Woods involve kind of involuntary summonings and and accidental bear pokings. Um, Tibor Takis, who's I'm Madman, you love so much, Eric. Um, he made The Gate in 1987, in which little Stevie Dorf and his neighbor friend access the further reaches of hell through the mechanism of a heavy metal album that's played backwards. Um, in Night of the Demons from 1988, that one is about a bunch of dumb kids who have a seance in an abandoned funeral parlor, and bad things ensue. Um, the Haunting in Connecticut also features um, a young cancer patient and an old funeral parlor. Um, Ouija and Ouija Origin of Evil traffic in these kinds of tropes. Um, Things that we've seen and discussed, like Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, is a great example, with a damaged teenage girl who opens a forbidden book, gets her friends disappeared to the netherworld. Um, Sinister with Ethan Hawke is a little bit different in that it's a, a father with some damage who gets his kiddos roped into a supernatural murder plot, but it's through watching cursed movies. Um and, you know, the, the entire cold open of Talk to Me is very much like the cold open of The Ring, but obviously amped up to 11. Um, oh, and, and of course, The Ring, with its cursed videotape and, and kind of pre-internet demonic contagion, has some kind of similarity, I think. And I could not get that association to... Um, to the girls in the opening of the ring out of my brain as we, you know, in talk to me, as we follow um, big brother Cole toward the bedroom door where his, his kid brother Duckett is melting down. I think with the live streaming angle, it has some echoes of things like unfriended from 2015 and host from 2020. And also Rob Savage's, um, <clears throat> frankly, horrible, hateful dash cam from 2021. And, uh, you know, in uh, Talk to Me, when we get the sort of glimpses of the tortured spirits of the dead pawing at poor Riley in some bardo, I, I thought there were kind of shades of the further in Insidious. And but, Event Horizon, the ultimate yes. ultimate horror of Event Horizon. Yes, thank you very much. And, you know, while it may not be entirely original, or, I mean, even particularly original at all, I do think that the experience of seeing it was a rewarding one, and it speaks to that other old trope, Eric, um, which is the one where I tell you that your experience of a horror movie would be completely different watching it on a big screen with Dolby Surround. Um, and I think it was it was sort of good to remind myself of that uh, on occasion, because as we three were all kind of anticipating seeing it in advance of our... Um, meeting again, I, I let it slip that I was um, scooching and wooching and squirming and worming and scrunching down in my seat while I was watching it. And I think for an old horror movie veteran like me, that sort of visceral first experience really can't be overvalued. Gretchen, what did I miss? 
The first one that actually came to my mind both structurally and I'm going to say tonally, but I mean sort of visually tonally, mm-hmm. is It Follows, uh, which yeah. does not have to do with a possession per se, but it does have to do with a character being followed by something that has been foisted upon them. Mm-hmm. And it has this slightly out of timeness. You know, this is clearly a, a 2023 movie, um, liberal use of cell phones and cell phone technology. And yet, there are these moments of old school flavor, lighting, um, out of focusness, the bus scene, the sort of tableau on mm-hmm. the bus scene that feel very throwback to me. And it follows, which was from, I don't even know. 2017 or something like that. I think a little earlier. Has that yeah. same feel, except I think a farther throwback, like early 80s throwback, but it's, you know, a contemporary film. Great. Yeah. You know, I was really sort of toying with um with the idea of talking about It Follows. Uh, and I'm glad you brought it up. Bradford, how dare you defame my beloved dash cam? <sighs> One yeah. of my favorite horror films of last year, and I am not kidding. I freaking loved that film. So, um, you know, I'm going to defend Rob Savage on on that one. Well, you and Rob Savage go get a room because I I had some problems with that one. Oh, you know what that means. Is that is that the the fire drill? Damn straight. It's the fire drill. Look. Whatever else you do, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen this film, it'll probably be streaming in a few weeks. That's right. It's time for Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, On a Roll, i.e. What Worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't work. But before we get into it, I have to ask you both to establish where we are on the playing field, and I've never gotten to say this before. I was just Um, about to say. I know, it's my first time. Um, Just a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? Bradford. Yes. Gretchen. Yeah. What about you, Mr. Winnick? Did you like this film? I did like this film, Mr. Lorick. All right. Okay. So then let's get into it. We'll do, as usual, on a roll first, and we will do it round robin style. We'll each name three scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us, and then we will hand out detention slips. Gretchen, as ever, as our guest, why don't you go first? What's your first nomination for the honor roll? You know, Bradford, just because you complimented my lipstick, I feel like I should let you go first because oh. we had a little conversation, a little sidebar about this, and we both had sort of the same thing. And I just, I don't want to steal your thunder, my friend. You know, this is a very special episode. Maybe we should just go together. Oh, <laughs> are we going to do it together? We could okay, try to ready? do it together. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. I'm going to count it down. Here we go. I'm going to count it down from three. Three. Two, one, go. Sound design. Oh, look at you two. You two. I love it. All right. Uh, Gretchen, why don't you go first? The first 
time I noticed it was actually not the first time it was effectively used. So I'm going to let Bradford Mm -hmm. elaborate on that because he noticed this Mm -hmm. wonderful moment that had totally passed me by in the, in the taste of blood cold open. Um, But I noticed it first in the growling thunder where I'm like, is it an animal or is it the, I mean, you know, I live in Los Angeles. So thunder is like a foreign thing to us. Um, But then you notice later the squish of wetness that accompanies sort of things appearing from the spirit world, the gurgling, throttled, drowning sounds of teens as they're about to be possessed. Um, the braying of the dying kangaroo that sort of comes in and out, they start very subtly Mm -hmm. and then they grow as the main character is sort of descending into, you know, her spiral of, of mental health, uh, death. Um, no spoilers. And, uh, oh wait, we can do spoilers. Fuck it. Spoilers. Sending into death. I was, I was aware of it, but in a, in a sort of happy, I love this kind of way. And now, Bradford, I'm going to let you describe the first amazing moment. Oh my God, you're the best. Okay. Um, you know, my favorite thing to point out, Eric, is always the, you know, Chekhov's X, right? Chekhov's something, yes. Chekhov's whatever the hell, you know? And in this, it's like Chekhov's nearly invisible knife in that sort of cold, open moment. We are just entering the film. We are just entering the party. And someone in the kitchen is preparing some kind of snack food i guess and you hear this incredibly present sound of um you know like this this sort of glinty knife moment uh right as we're like passing through the kitchen and 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 we we see it ever so briefly and then all of a sudden duck it who's behind the locked door, He's he uses that knife to stab his brother Cole in the gut and then in relatively short order, jam it straight into his forehead. And we, we hear that sort of like glinting, glistening, metallic sound so presently. Uh, I just, I personally could not assume anything else was going to happen. It was so subtle because you're at the beginning and everything about that cold open first of all it's it's my it's my favorite bit in the film which does not say i didn't like the film but it's my favorite bit in the film that it's so well executed yes it's so good because everything is out of focus you don't see anybody's faces you know duck it as he's staggering around as like a drunken man off balance and you don't necessarily see what's in his hand but you heard that sound but you never saw him take the knife. You just heard that sound, mm-hmm. like as you pull it mm-hmm. out of a block. Such a recognizable sound if you spent any time in a kitchen. And then he just turns slightly to profile as if he's about to fall over drunk. And then, boom, it's so good. Um, all right. So what about you, Eric? What's honor roll number one? Well, you know what? This this feels like a very sort of complete film experience to me and that yes there is horror and yes there are scares but but it also tells a very good story that has a lot of resonance for anyone who say has had issues with addiction or say lost a family member um 
this movie feels grounded in reality. And I appreciated the quieter moments. Um, and the critics pointed this out as well. Um, say, like the scene between Mia and her dad. Um, I appreciated those moments as much as I did the crazy kind of nightmarish scenes. And when you zoom out and take a look at this film for what it is, this is a really sad story. Yes. You know, not unlike that of Ari Aster's first two films and that it is a story that emerges as a result of pain or grief. And I appreciated that, that they, they were, they were reaching for something much more profound than just, you know, jump scares. All right. Uh, so are, are you guys at number two or, or was that sort of 0.5 for you guys? <laughs> I, I, I guess we should go back to Gretchen for her number yeah. two. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Let's go Gretchen. All right. Um, for my number two, I would like to point out the dead people. Mm. Um, we have seen dead people portrayed in many films uh, in various sort of versions of decay. I thought Sixth Sense did a fantastic job of mm-hmm. sort of presenting these people in the moments of their death. Um, so that there's a hint of a story. But what I loved about the dead people here was unraveling just slightly in my head as you get glimpses of them, what the fuck might have happened to them? Right. <laughs> and the one that I'm going to uh, discuss in detail that sort of brings this really, you know, to a head for me is the toe sucker. No. Um, she will always be known as the toe sucker. I don't know if this actress ever goes on to do anything else in her life, but she will always be the toe sucker to me. But like, think about how, and you know, it's funny. I tried to go back and find images of her online. I wanted to sort of recall exactly what she was wearing, but the film is so new that there's none of that. She's she's Um, wearing a bra. Um, She's wearing a bra and either a slip or a skirt. I was kind of unclear or perhaps a dress that's been partially taken off. I I can't quite remember. Her hairline is receding. The hair is, you know, wet and goopy and sort of plastered to her head in weird ways. And there's blood and the and I'm like, girl, what the fuck happened to you, man? Like, what were your last moments like? And then the ravenous, hungry scurry on all oh, fours across oh. the floor. Mm-hmm. Even, I mean, the toe sucking, as disturbing as it is, is almost secondary to the hunger with which she moves toward the sleeping boy. Um, yeah. And it was it was really well done in the moment, but I have to give you know a, a wonderful uh, round of applause to the way those dead people are styled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes they're referential. I thought the old man near the end reminded me very much of um, the Baba Yaga in Drag Me to Hell. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. with the squinty eyes and the like. You mean the, like, uh, you mean Baba Ganoush? Whatever, yeah. <laughs> the the old the old uh, Mrs. Witch lady. Mrs. Ganoush. Yes. Yeah, Mrs. Ganoush. Um uh you know it there were there were hints of the like one of the first ones they see that like bloated corpse that might have been drowned. Mm-hmm. Um the little girl yeah. in the hospital who clearly hasn't been dead that long. Like mm-hmm. it was it was wonderful to see a moment with these these spirits, these entities, and 
it left me thinking like what happened there I, I just want to make one one comment. I, I think if if I were to make up a new award just for this film, it would be called the Griffin Dunn Award for Vision of Decaying Body. Well, you know, I mean, that's kind of a, a great point and something I kind of wanted to mention because, you know, as we're watching it, um, Mia's mother uh, seems yes. to to decay before our eyes and every yes. time every we appearance. see her yes. she's more and more decayed um, the physical decay mimicking the sort of emotional decay right yes um and you know i, I was sort of curious as to you know i'm glad you said that you know what what you would ascribe the decay to um, you know, and of course, we've seen that in a million places, right? I mean, from things like the Frighteners to an American werewolf in London, um, you yes. know, this this kind of steady decline. But I wonder to what we attribute it in Talk to Me. I think it's Mia's. It's definitely a Mia POV. So as her mental health, her grasp on reality is beginning to unravel the way in which she sees her mother begins to unravel and also the mother's hold on her yeah sort of becomes less less real well that also begs the question is it mia's mother well yes of course you know in that very like uh, you know, Japanese horror movie kind of way that Thank the spirits you. may not be what the spirits are. Mm -hmm. And they're really just agents of chaos in the end. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, who knows? Uh, I don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> I hope I'm not being graded on that. Uh, <laughs> no. But, but the no. fact that it's it's just sort of hung out there uh, it didn't bother me. There, there are some other unresolved moments in this film that did that I will get to in detention slips. But the way that that we see the entities, whatever they are or are not, um, I thought was really visceral, exciting, um, and the way that they developed was was fun. All right. All right. Excellent. Uh, Mr. Lorick, I think you have a second uh, honor roll for us. I definitely, I have, I have many potential honor roll mentions. <laughs> How long is your list? Uh, it's, it's not that bad, but. Um, Let's keep it to three. I'm going to keep it to three. Um, I, I think this is kind of maybe picking up on some of the stuff that Gretchen was talking about in her first honor roll designation for sound design. Um, there's a, I, I guess the cyclical structure of it, I appreciated along with its use of metaphor, both visual and, and sort of more sort of literary. Um, you know, I mean, things like the dying baby kangaroo, which kind of factors into sound design, but also visual metaphor. Um, mm. You know, the idea that it is sort of unable to be put out of its misery uh, and that idea becoming a sort of recurring motif is something I really appreciated um, with regard to structure, um, that, that Mia becomes the next spirit reaching out for connection in, in death as she kind of reached out for connection to death in life. Um, and then also, uh, you know, speaking of metaphor, and, and Eric, you kind of touched on this earlier, but um, the addictive or obsessive nature of the demonic possession and its 
it's kind of functioning like a drug. Um, you know, the, the kids who are possessed, their irises get all big and black and they kind of look like they're in some kind of state of ecstasy or that they're on ecstasy. And, you know, that, that drug metaphor is, I think, a really interesting twist on the possession story. Um, and, um, and there's a level of peer pressure to engage with the, um, the otherworldly, which felt very fresh to me. Yes. And I'm going to actually segue into my second honor roll because I think it follows. It, it follows. Do you see what I did there? I um, saw what you did there. Um, Sophie Wilde is one of those actors who has such a distinctive look and she gives a performance that is so committed that you can't help but feel that you are there at the birth of a star. That's always exciting to me. I mean, cheers to all of the actors who become possessed and have to act like they're drowning or gagging or, I mean, they all do it very convincingly, but Wilde has to carry this movie and sort of take it to its ultimate horrifying conclusion and she is just great throughout um whether she's sucking someone's foot or becoming unglued at the idea of talking to her dead mother um just a, a wonderful lead performance and and really like for an unknown i think she just carries this beautifully well said gretchen honor roll number three you hinted at this when you guys were talking about the casting and who made this film, but I would especially like to call out the performance of Joe Bird as Riley. Oh, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Such an amazing balance of a young teen, the innocence of that, but also the sort of desire to be older and yet yeah. the fear therein, not quite being ready for, you know, the, the, towing the line toward adulthood that's that so to sister. speak yes <laughs> i mean like look you want to you want to bring it back around we'll do hands and toes all night long and then of course the hospital room scene oh with the lapping of his own blood oh my mixed God. with water with just such relish a hungry man dying of thirst just lapping up you know broth from the ground like it was like rhapsodic and disturbing and uh i i had to look up how old he was because yeah it felt like he carried that role with a gravitas that that sort of outpaced his years i think yeah. that even you know I don't know anything about Australian cinema. I, I've never seen anything he's been in before, but that's an actor that I would that I would go see again. It, it reminded me of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance in Brick, which sort of stretched him from child actor to adult, even though he was playing a teen. Um, it had that kind of range to it. He has a, a fantastic ability to do quiet and loud. And I thought he he really needed to be um, highlighted in my honor roll. I agree I mean, with that. I, I think yeah. you're right. There are there are two performances in this film that are just outstanding, both Sophie Wilde and Joe Bird. And and the scene in which he has to become Mia's mother. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh -huh. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, to say nothing of his commitment in the possession sequence. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not usually a fan of sort of extreme violence in, in horror, though I'm 
you know, obviously always in love with supernatural horror. Um, but there was such an amazing visceral effect that I sort of experienced as I watched that the possession. I scene. sort of experienced. Oh God. See what I did there? Oh my I, God. I, I, I do. Eyes, toes, hands. It's hands, all about body fingers, parts, people. Yep. What, what, what's the head, shoulders, knees, and toes? Knees and toes. You know? Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. toes. Um, but you know, I mean, like, and again, I mean, it, it's sort of like the, the collision of all of these kinds of things that we were talking about in that possession scene, plus the performance of Joe Bird. You know, I mean, it it was like really impactful, really relentless, and I mean, it really made me feel something as I was watching it. Which brings you to, I guess, your third uh, honor roll, sir. Yes. Um, And because we're keeping this lean, um, I'm going to maybe go a little off track here. But, um, you know, I know we're in kind of a Kylie Minogue moment with Padam, um, but nothing beats Edith Piaf. And when that Richard Carter remix of Piaf's La Foule played... I was first completely and utterly delighted. Um, and and then, of course, you know, I mean, it actually gave me a different kind of respect for the filmmakers, because if you if you speak French or if you know what the song is about, it's kind of got a larger significance because the lyrics talk about being kind of in the whirl and the rush of the crowd and forgetting your suffering, being kind of joined together in one body moving and and kind of madly dancing. And I think that's a pretty damned good description of demonic possession. Um, all right. So uh, that that's my number three. Let's toss it back to Mr. Winnick for a, a final honor roll. Thank you, sir. Um, the ending of this film is a knockout. Um, after Mia flings herself into the road and spares Riley's life, and let's just say that that happens, because mm-hmm. um, we, <laughs> we don't we, see it, right? Well, yeah. well, it's it's you start questioning a lot of things in this film, yeah. but um, we do get this strong sense that she is now experiencing the afterlife. Yeah. I mean, she has she had talked earlier about having a nightmare about not seeing her reflection in a mirror, mm-hmm. which is something that happens yep. at the end mm-hmm. of this film. And so by the time she shakes hands with, I don't know, I assumed it was maybe like the original medium. Um, we do see a guy sitting at a table. It's out of focus. When she goes to shake the hand of the guy over the candle at the very end, um, she comes to, shaking the hand of this kid at another party in another place on planet earth. Yeah, No, they were kids though, were they? I mean, they were, well, they're speaking Spanish. It was, it was just like, here we go again. And it's both funny and horrifying at the same time. And I just, I loved it. I actually thought I was just like, that's great. Detention after school, both of you. You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? 
motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Now, as playwright Ernie Joslovitz uh, used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Um, again, Gretchen, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of Talk to Me that you feel deserves detention? All right. I'm going to start this by saying don't Here we go. Me. I know. Go. No, I'm so I think I'm I'm usually the, the, the one Eric saying Winnick that. role today. I know. Okay, I no. know. Seriously. I, I just want to oh. clarify. I did not dislike this film at all. As you heard in the opening, I did like this film. But there was one moment that sort of highlights my big issue with this film. So I'm going to give you the moment and then I'm going to talk about what I think the larger issue is in terms of the character arc of Mia. The moment is the whiffed opportunity for an oh shit. It's when Mia's in her room talking to her mom after her father has read her the suicide mm-hmm. note. And she says, no, that's not true. And she goes to her room and her mom says, that's not your father. That's one of them pretending to be him. And we he- we see her door shake there's someone on the other side it's her dad's voice pounding to get in mia mia let me in and it cuts to her dad on the sofa looking through her backpack mm-hmm. now right that is the first moment where it is abundantly clear that her perception of reality is heavily heavily tainted by you know the influence of these entities however I felt that it was so heavily telegraphed throughout. It wasn't a surprise to me Mm -hmm. that her dad wasn't actually at the door. Of course he wasn't. Of course the figure of the mother is lying to her. They have shown it to us. They've hit us over the head with Mm -hmm. this plot point that they lie, that they get in their head, that they, they, you know, Daniel even says, like, I think that they just, you know, can read our thoughts and, and sort of parrot them a little bit. That moment had the potential to be like fall off your seat in the movie theater good. And instead I shrugged and I was like, yeah, well, of course, duh. And I think it speaks to the bigger problem of Mia's arc, meaning what the fuck does she really want in this? She wants connection to her mother. She wants healing. I don't know. And I think part of it is we see her alternately protecting Riley as if he is her own brother and then kind of like being a dick to him or being unprotective of him, especially in terms of allowing him to, you know, go ahead and take the hand, which Jade has said hell to the no. Um, I can't figure out what her journey is supposed to be. And I think this moment really highlighted the problem because if up until that moment, We truly believed as the audience that she is the only one who knows how to save Riley, even if it's at the expense of her own life, right? That she is the only one that can save him. And we believe that. Then when we realize how fucked she is in the head, right? Mm -hmm. That's a huge moment. That's the big, huge reveal of the, the movie. And yet it wasn't because I didn't want her anywhere near Riley by that point. I was I was with Miranda Otto. Get the hell out of this hospital or I will call the police. Right. And because I think the journey wasn't clear and 
her motivations were unclear, it muddied what could have been a spectacular moment in the film. I know that her performance was wonderful. I know that one of the reviewer one of the reviewers touched on this a little bit about why are we on this journey in the first place? And I feel like perhaps a more experienced storyteller in long form would have seen this as a potential problem and been able to tweak it enough that instead of good, it could have been absolutely amazing. I knew immediately that this was going to be a moment that Gretchen zeroed in on. Oh, (laughs) yay. So thank you for not letting us down, Gretchen. (laughs) Number one on my list, baby. All right. All right, Bradford, what do you have? Detention slip number one. Oh, God. Okay, well, you know, I mean, I'm going to start with something really um, simply because we were talking about at the end of Honor Roll. But in the very end, Eric, I don't perhaps think it's as successful as you do. And huh. let's recall that I do appreciate the kind of cyclical structure. I, I do appreciate that Mia becomes the entity who is reaching out, but how many hands are there? How did it get to a party at a college in like Rio de Janeiro or wherever the hell it was? <laughs> how many hands are there is the best How many hands ever. are there? You know, I mean, I just kind of call bullshit on that one. And I'm going to leave wow. it there. That is my first attention slip. All right. Well, what do um, you have, Eric? I'm glad you asked because uh, <laughs> I have a very, very significant point here that I have to make. Um, I just wish I'd been in a better audience than the one at the AMC Danvers Liberty Tree Mall 20, where <laughs> this ma- out the movie theater. <laughs> you dirty where dog. this this massive man child sitting next to me had stowed all of his candy in a plastic bag, which he put on his lap and was pulling out. I don't, I don't know. I think individually wrapped Twizzlers throughout the film, like the first half of the film. And I know, listen, not every movie palace can be the Alamo draft house, but God damn it. It should be Uh, back to you, Gretchen. All right. For numero dos talk to the social media integration. I love that they used it. I love the cold open as I as stated. I thought it was amazing. It's my favorite cold open taste of blood since it follows. And when he when Cole's like put your phones away, put your phones away, like and they're all filming it. And then we get the hint of Mia watching one of these Haley Joss parties and what's happening and sort of shows, shows it to Jade and was like let's go to this. That is the only moment in the entire film that I recall where anyone actually watches any of the social media footage of anything to do with this hand. So if we have these cameras out all the time, filming it, posting it, like to what extent does that play into the plot? And the answer is none, (laughs) which, Mm -hmm. okay, so it doesn't have to, obviously, Uh, filming cameras video is such an important part of 21st century life especially for young people i totally get it but But gretchen do we do we know how how far in advance the the ducket coal party happens before the sort of 
main action of the film because we don't. I, I didn't I didn't find that implausible because I, I was just like I didn't really get the timeline down and I thought maybe they were just seeing it for the first time because it had happened, I don't know, fairly recently. Well, and that was fine, right? It's fine that they haven't seen footage of Duckett like jabbing a knife into his eye socket. Like that's fine. But you have all of this footage, the cops show up, like mm -hmm. to what extent should it be integrated into the actual story? like the actual plot points of the story. And I feel like, again, part of this has to do with the meandering story arc of Mia in that there is no point at which she's like, I should maybe research this a little bit and find out like, you know, we've had recent parties of these things, even going back to the one that they had at Jade's house, you know, where they're, they're all going through this, you know, the, the montage of possession. It never comes up we never go back and look at it like could there be a clue in all of that that helps this I, I agree I I think that there is no real reason for her to look into the why or wherefore of any of this right. because she's so entranced by it right and she needs an escape she's miserable in her life and she will do anything to distract herself from what she's going through so I I, I to me it didn't bother me that she didn't um investigate it or uh, question it further. But there you go. Uh, Mr. Lorick, do you have a second detention sleep? I do. And sort of, uh, it kind of picks up on, um, on Gretchen's point, but I think it, it's sort of just more perhaps broad and, and personal. I mean, I, I just sort of despise the intrusion of technology in the horror genre, especially when it's unearned. Um, yeah. and you know, unearned the, this, is a fantastic word. Yeah. This entire thing revolves around, you know, entreating the spirit world for the benefit of a social media audience. Right. Um, and, and I think that if the film were less well executed, it would have bothered me more, but as it is, I mean, it still bothered me plenty, you know, and it's why I will always prefer a sort of, period film without a cell phone than something super contemporary. But again, here, because it was, it just felt tacked on or again, unearned. Um, I just, I, I did not care for it. I honestly don't know what you guys are talking about. I honestly, this is so <laughs> in the moment. This is a film that takes place in 2023. What do you think kids would be doing during something like that, but whipping out their phones and filming it? I mean, it's just, Absolutely, that is, but then, I understand that you don't like you know. technology in a horror film, but that is very much of the moment. And that is what kids would be doing at a party. I guess so. All right. Um, Eric, what so, do you got? My second detention slip is for the um, AMC Danvers <laughs> Liberty Tree Mall Twenty, for a few a few other reasons. A, their what website. What are you trying was, to do? Are you trying to get us sponsored or canceled? What are you trying to do here? A, their website was down all day, so I couldn't use my fucking gift card. B, when I got to the box office, they had no way. Uh, of scanning my gift card, even though there was a fucking QR code and they claimed they couldn't scan it. So that was lame. And C, they have those 
make your own Coke machines, you mm-hmm. know, the freestyle. So I got a regular size drink, okay, which was $7. And I had to pee throughout the entire film. It was just, I was like holding it in and it was painful. But of course, it's AMC. So of course, everybody's using their fucking recliners. So I couldn't leave. And that was, of course, another thing that just took me right out of the film. I feel like um, you just, your detention slip was for your bladder? Maybe. <laughs> um, Eric, you know, I, I have to say this is an interesting shift here because usually you. yes. I, am, uh, I am abstaining from handing out slips for the marvelous films that I curate for your delectation. Or and here you are just making some. shit up because yeah. obviously listen, you liked this movie a lot, and that makes me really listen, happy. Can we not talk about the experience of seeing the film, especially since we're talking about a new film? This is a very special bonus episode. We all saw this in the theater, which mm-hmm. is unusual for this podcast. So, you know, the experience of seeing a film is very much about, you know, it sort of colors about your the experience, experience of the yes, film. Of course. Exactly, exactly. Like when I saw Blair Witch Project, opening weekend, 1999, Full House, Angelica listen, Film Center. Listen, you know, buddy, I mean, I, that was... When I saw Summer of Sam and the air conditioning was broken in the theater and I felt like I was <laughs> in the movie. Do you know what I mean? 1977. Like, yes. Not during the Summer of Sam, the film summer of sam <laughs> didn't they do that with the adrian brody patty lapone's boobs summer of sam yep. you know there you the go. one patty yeah. lapone's boobs wow that was not on my bingo card for tonight let's go back to gretchen for her third and final detention slip okay and i'm sure that this is not an accurate portrayal but I would like to call specific attention to the Australian medical system because apparently <laughs> there's not a single fucking security guard in that entire hospital. Do you know how long it takes somebody to get into that yeah. shower with yeah. Riley? And then like Mia just wheels him the fuck out of there on a, yeah. in a uh-huh. wheelchair. I'm like, I, I have what? That. Are you kidding me with that? <laughs> like, There is no yeah. way. I have had many hospital stays. You don't get a foot out of your room without someone being like, oh, I'm sorry, no, ma'am, it's true. where are you going? My third detention slip. I mean, I just, oh God. With the exception of Miranda Otto's character, Sue, or um, uh, the the sort of love interest, Daniel, I, I found most of the characters to be tremendously unlikable. I found yeah. them very uh-huh. believable but merely thoroughly unlikable. And I suppose, I don't know, maybe that's kids today, you know, if they're not lazy (laughs) and stupid and using AI to come up with ideas for them, then they're like demonic possession addicted assholes. But I found the characters to be unlikable to the point of kind of keeping me uh, from connecting with the characters on any kind of significant emotional level. All right, uh, Mr. Winnick, give us your third and final detention slip. So I want to make a point about the AMC Danvers Liberty. No, just kidding. Um, Look, shit. I wish you could have seen my eye roll. (laughs) In all seriousness, um, there is a point in this film where things start going off the rails for Mia. And as I've 
said a couple times on this podcast, I, I did start to wonder if any of what she was going through from that point on is real. Like after her first experience with the hand, is she basically a changed person? I, th I think the answer is yes. Um, so if so, why are the others not experiencing things to the, to the extent that she is? So A, is there something about Mia's loss um, that makes her somehow more quote unquote susceptible to the ghosts or whatever you want to call them coming through whatever portal has been opened B, how much does that have to do with going over 90 seconds and then everything. C everything C, I, I agree I don't care what C is <laughs> <laughs> go ahead I'm sorry Eric go ahead doesn't Riley also go over 90 seconds or is it or is there something different about his experience? Well, and he's also, you know, locked up in something. So I think it's the two yeah. of them yeah. that experience this because they go over the 90 seconds. Although where right. the 90 seconds, okay. I mean, there's okay. a, you know, there's a half-assed explanation, you know, of that. Don't go over 90 yeah. seconds. That's what I heard right. kind of thing. But so I, I So I was why. just going to, to sum up. I'm basically, if, if, if it's all real... Then how the hell does Mia, in in her bloody tank top, manage to sneak Riley out of the hospital in a wheelchair? So I just want to like pick up on what you were saying earlier, Gretchen. That was completely ridiculous. Yeah. And so it's like a rules thing that I found confusing. Like, who does this happen to and why? And at what point does the real stuff, quote unquote, end? Yeah. That was confusing to me. And I do think that, you know, not to make it all about me, but I do think that goes back to the the sort of non-specific arc for Mia about mm -hmm. what she believes and why she believes it and when that starts to go right. wrong. It's not specific. Right. And because of that, there's this ambiguity about what what is real and what is not. All right. Before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. Let's get some air into our lungs. We'll run around a little bit, maybe have a snack or two. Now, Gretchen, we know that your favorite school time snack was a handy snack. Handy Crackers snack. and fake oh. cheese. It's like I set it up a year ago or whatever we recorded that episode. <laughs> a handy snack. Well uh, done. Thank you. Um, you know, that gelatinous crap with the little red spreader. Uh, but is there anything you've perhaps tried more recently? Anything maybe a little bit more grown up that uh, that that you want to shill in the um, junk pantheon? Well, certainly not grown up, but so I have I have two young beasts that live in my house. Not not the cats, the kids, and right. uh, you still know, feral. School, you know, yeah. Fair. Uh, I pack <laughs> school lunches, and um, they need a little they need a little treat in their lunches, you know, because God forbid they just eat the fruit, but. I bought a bag of circus cookies. Do you remember these? They're pink or white shaped nebulously like some sort of animal in a mm. circus, except circuses don't have animals anymore. So there's that level of confusion. And they are huh. highly addictive, which is like to say for some reason, there is some weird satisfying like sugar rush crunch now, creamy mix i don't know what's going on now now gretchen are you are you trying to tell us that you've had more than one of these on occasion? i mean have yes. you had your hand in the snack bag my hand has been caught oh. in the jar. Yeah. 
And I might right. say you're both very handsome. Oh, you smooth talker. <laughs> All right, kids, let's take a break and then let's come back for the superlatives. everyone's concerned you're the most popular girl in your school and the fact that you hang with d and i well he speaks very highly of you well he's very popular and cools nerds your side my side man it's all bullshit it's just tough enough to be yourself so is this your first time out here yeah i don't think i'm very popular out here either hey i met you you are not cool. There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, Nada Surf. Uh, it's time now to hand out our superlatives. Those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like Best Looking, best dressed, uh, best hands, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserved to die. So um, to start us off, let's let's do the first award, uh, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, um, which tonight I'm going to just uh, retitle the William Friedkin Award for Most Disturbing Scene in honor of our dearly departed um, uh director of The Exorcist, one of our favorite films. Uh, so uh, tonight, it's the William Friedkin Award for Most Disturbing Scene, uh, and I would like to have uh, Gretchen start us off. Gretchen, what do you have for the Friedkin? The Freaky Friedkin Award is going to have to go to the toe sucker scene for me. Um, I know it's not violent, and it's not... Um, gory in a way that this film does sort of go there with the gore but there's something very disturbing about the way that actress just scurries over to that foot and goes to town on it and that to me is the most disturbing scene was it that or was it the reveal that it's actually mia sucking on it no that's (laughs) no 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 i i really think it was it was it was more disturbing mm-hmm. that this kid is asleep and this yeah. entity that's just so like with the bra and the hair. Oh, oh skittering, oh. chittering entity. Just, yes, like a spider across the floor and just like going to town. Yeah. yeah. Bradford, yes. uh, what gets your Friedkin? Oh, my Freaky Friedkin award goes hands down to the dog makeout scene oh it's definitely the most cringeworthy it was it's certainly going to be the one people are talking about probably more than anything it disturbed me the most so yeah easy easy answer what about you eric I'm giving my Hurricane Billy to um, the scene in which Riley is repeatedly smashing his face against a table and then goes for his eye and um, I I don't know. I'm going to have to ask you guys, does he get it out or not? I No. Not no. all the way. Just partly. He does seem to be digging in there. Um, I couldn't tell. He but like th- semis it. <laughs> semis it. That scene was the one where I'm sure, Bradford, you would have felt my elbow digging into your ribs at that point. Y- yeah, I would imagine so. Um, I-, I-, I don't think he gets it out all the way, but I think he probably definitely has a restricted driver's license. Oh, God. Well, I mean, you... His eye is like 
you know, closed for the rest of the movie. Stwollen so shut. swollen yeah. shut. Yeah. yeah. Um, which brings us to the second award, the Ellen Ripley award. Um, Named, of course, for Sigourney Weaver's character Ellen Ripley from the uh, 1979 Rip, uh, Ripley Scott film. <laughs> <laughs> he really should just change his name at this point, right? Ripley, believe it or not. Scott, believe it or not, Scott. Alien. Named for Sigourney Weaver's character in Working Girl. <laughs> Her bony ass. This is the character that um, most deserve to live. We're going to bend the rules a little bit uh, once again here. Um, so, uh, Bradford Lorick, uh, why don't you start us off? Ellen Ripley Award for character most deserve to live. Who do you have? The the character of young Ripley. I mean, Riley, uh, obviously. Uh, huh. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think Riley most deserve to live and does. Interesting. Uh, I will follow you up and say yeah. that I'm going to go with Riley's sister, Jade. Played by Alexandra Jensen. A little awkward, a little rough around the edges, not quite willing to go for it with the boyfriend. Uh, may have the worst mother in the world. Uh, wonderfully played by Miranda Otto, I should say. Wants to do the right thing, doesn't do the right thing, pays for it. Um, so I'm going with Jade. Gretchen, who do you have for the Ripley Award? I'm going to make an unexpected choice and say... Max, Mia's dad. Um, huh. You know, I I feel like he got he got the fuzzy end of the lollipop in this movie a little bit. Not just because his wife, um, you know, OD'd, and then his daughter theoretically threw herself in front of oncoming traffic and stabbed him in the throat, with and a and stabbed him in the throat, and apparently he survived. I mean, we see him walking out of the hospital as the lights go out there at the end, which to me implies that he survived. He's still in the light. Oh. I didn't think that at all because I think that's the afterlife. I, think I thought he was among the dead. He was among the dead. I, I Really? See, I thought, because we see two hallways. Mm-hmm. We see Jade, Sue, and Riley in one hallway. That, that And she, she, I mean, secondarily, she goes after him. First, it's her dad. He's walking down a hallway out of the hospital into the light and turns. And then the, and then the lights go out behind him. And then we see... Sue, Riley, and Jade, it's the same tableau down the other hallway, you know, at the 90-degree angle, going out, and the lights go out behind them. To me, that seemed pretty clear that they were both alive. I feel like if Max had been dead, then he would have just been hanging out there with her. Um, it did, To me, it felt like time had passed. He had survived and left. I mean, whatever life... He's heading back to, I don't know. Um, but, you know, he might be a little clueless. He may not have known how to relate to his daughter. Um, and tr- But he tried to protect her, which, you know, again, he didn't do a great job. But he tried. Um, maybe yeah. he should get his hearing looked at, I think, perhaps. Um, but I, I'm going to give it to Max. If, yeah. if, in fact, he did survive, which apparently is a point of debate. Well done. Okay. And, I mean, to... To to be fair, we've all only seen this one time. It's true, and and we couldn't go back for reference, you know. Right, exactly. That's true. Um, so we will take that uh, as a vote for Max for the Ellen Ripley Award. Um, so that brings us, of course, of course, to the Mike Myers Award. Uh, this is the award. Uh, that we give uh, every week to uh, the star of Austin Powers, 
uh, International Man of Mystery. And this is for the character. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. No, that's Michael Myers. The You just put that right back in your skin box, Eric. You mean my skin box? <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> but I'm Dutch. Behave. Oh, please. Um, we're not going to go into who is Michael Myers this week. We're just going to go right to the award. Um, and I'm going to ask Bradford to give us his Michael Myers award for character that most deserved to die. Mia. Really? Yeah, I mean, she knows what I mean, she knows as much as any of them knows what what is what she's um what she's trafficking in. And she continues to go back. She has this kind of um addiction to possession. And she invites it back and she um continues to to court it. She deserves the comeuppance she gets. Wow. Interesting. Not sympathetic to this character at all. All right. Um, Gretchen, who do you have for the Michael Myers? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with that fucking kangaroo. No, no, I'm not. I'm joking. PETA, don't come at me. Um, no, Bradford's right. It's it's Mia. Whoa. She's selfish. She makes selfish choices and she can't. she's not self-aware enough to see you know, what she's doing and who she's hurting. So, Mia. Interesting. Though there is a pervasive lack of self-awareness across all of the characters in this film. Yes. Well, call me completely obvious. Uh, I'm giving it to Zoe Tarakis as Haley, who is just awful to everyone in this film. But I am happy, happy to take it to the Ken... Russell Award for most Baroque screen moment. Ken Russell named Ken Russell. Who is he? You, you mean Ken Russell? The dir- oh, oh, wait, go, Gretchen, what did you? I wanted to do that ah. so badly. <laughs> wait, wait, Gretchen, what did he direct again? Whore. Don't you call Eric that kind of name? <laughs> okay, I think Sorry. that's all that we really need to say. He's just, he is just a man of easy virtue. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to start off because you guys are being so mean. Look, I really I really struggled with this one. Who, all right, Eric. Who wins? Who, who's getting the, the Ken, Ken Russell, Russell Award? Award um, that whore, Mia. No. Um, I wanted to say the scene in Mia's room in which the creature, I honestly didn't know if it was a man or a woman, crawls out from the corner of the room, talk about frame analysis horror, Bradford, and begins chowing down on Daniel's foot. But I think for the sake of brokenness, I'm going to go with the uh, crazy possession montage um, in which everyone is just having a grand old time grasping the hand and being transported into the spirit world one at a time. And boy, does it seem like fun. So that's got my Ken Russell Award. Bradford Lorick, what do you have for the Ken Russell Award? As much as it pains me to um, to not be in alignment with at least one of you on this. Uh, yes. See, I mean, I, I, would s- I wouldn't say that there's a hell of a lot of Baroque about this film. I think it's pretty relentlessly straightforward. I think it's very grounded, and I think it's very real. But if I had to name one, 
I think it's actually Riley's sort of tile smashing self-harm huh. ballet in the bathroom of the hospital room. Wow. And I think the framing of that where it's just him and the and the sounds and the blood, that was a close second for me for sure. So what do you got, Gretchen? I did I did the orgiastic possession montage. The sort of rhapsodic way that they throw their heads around and, and and allow these things in felt so over the top it was it was a it was a good moment it was a really good moment bradford lorick we we are at our final award of the night can you believe it are you are you talking about the brad dorif award I am talking about the Brad Dourif Award, and uh, it's a shame that he didn't work with with Billy Friedkin. That that would have been interesting. But no, this is Brad Dourif, um, the actor best known for uh, his role in a, a sequel to Billy Friedkin's The Exorcist, uh, the role of James Veneman. James Veneman, the, the Gemini, Gemini killer, killer in The Exorcist. In three, The Exorcist Three, directed by William Peter Blatter, another Billy, Billy Blatty. So uh, we've talked extensively about Dourif's other roles. Um, so let's go right into it. Um, Gretchen, why don't you start us off? Who is the, this is the award for the character who could or should have been played by Brad Dourif. Do you have somebody in this film? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a cast of young people and Mr. Dourif is not, a young person any longer. No. However, however, if we were to use the the time machine, the uh, imaginary Hollywood time machine, go back in time with Mister Mister Dourif in a in a Indiana Jones kind of way, Hollywood de aging AI uh, machine, and 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 again, I loved their performance. Zoe Tarakis was fantastic as the loathable Haley, mm-hmm. but I think Dourif would have really like slithered around in the vileness of that role and uh, and would have been uh, like a young nubile <laughs> young nubile Brad <laughs> would have been spectacular as Haley. Excellent. Good choice. Good choice. Uh Mr. Lorick, Brad Dorf award. I'm I am right there with Gretchen. I am gonna hand the Brad Dourif Award to the character of Haley. Listen, I'm not sure there was an older Dorif role in this film, uh, as you pointed out. So, I, I would like to have seen a younger Billy Bibbit era Dourif in the role of Daniel, because I, I would say. The only other actor you could probably get to make out with a dog in the seventies was probably Brad Dourif. Huh. That might be like your your next special award, actor most likely to make out with a dog in this film. Yeah, snog a dog. Yes, exactly. Snog a dog in the seventies goes to <laughs> I don't know, man. The seventies were weird, so I feel like that list might be longer than just two people. It's kind of aspirational too, because as you put it. Gretchen, he is kind of a wet noodle, and 100%. I think Dorif would have brought something a little, little more to that role, perhaps. I think I, I think Karen Black was probably the most likely to snog a dog in the seventies. <laughs> it's it's true. We're trying to figure out which character should be making out with a dog, and Dorif like leaping up with his hand in the air, going, "Pick me, pick me!" Dorif would have been eating his own foot in that sequence. 
God help us if Brad Dourif ever listens to any of these. He's our patron saint. All right, guys. And with that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night. It is the final exam. This, of course, is the part where we give out our final letter grades for the semester based on everything that we have heard and seen about Talk to Me. Ms. McNeil, would you like to go first? Yes, and I I thought long and hard about this, and I vacillated somewhat. But I'm going to go with a B-, and the minus really comes from this issue with with Mia's arc and, and what it is she really wants. All right. Mr. Winnick, I am desperate to hear this answer. Oh, God. Is it is it going to happen? Is it going to happen, Bradford, right now? Are we going to get it? It might happen, Gretchen. Oh, my God. It might happen for the very first time in a very oh. special episode. MCU. <laughs> <laughs> well, y- you guys know that most of my issues with this film had to do with the AMC Liberty Tree Mall 20, um, which may... Maybe partially because of its proximity to the Danvers Mental Hospital, beautifully portrayed in session nine. But no, I, 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 you know, my third detention slip, um, I did have some serious questions about, you know, what was going on when and who was experiencing what. I did like this film a lot. Um, you know, I did have just one detention slip, but it was a pretty big one. So I'm giving this a B plus, guys. Oh, oh Eric. No! You, you let us down the primrose path, and Eric. You obviously loved this movie. You churl. You curmudgeon. How dare you, sir? How dare you? That's a good grade for me, guys. <laughs> That's a very good grade for you. But I, I really thought we were gonna make history here tonight. You know, but if you if I was to put this up against the ones that I you know, I never gave. I haven't given out an A yet. But if I was to think about the films that that got an A minus for me that we've talked about, like Drag Me to Hell or The Old Dark House, you know, I just to me this is it's a it's a good film, but it's not a great film. Those films to me are 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 almost perfect. Mr. Lorick? Guys, I'm going to give this. I'm going to fall s- directly between the two of you and give it a solid B. Wow. This is the first time I've ever given a higher grade than you. So something interesting, something fascinating did happen tonight. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, if you did, Tell your friends, share these episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet, have a listening party, bring some weirdo pink fudgy circus cookies, maybe even subscribe. Uh, Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scarypod.com. Thank you again to our very, very, very special guest, Gretchen McNeil. Gretchen, if people want to find you and your work online, remind them where they can do that. Um, yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram as at handstuff. No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> at Gretchen <laughs> underscore McNeil. 
I also uh, have a book out in March of 2024. It is called Four Letter Word. And sticking with my beloved Hitchcock theme, it is an homage to his masterpiece, his perhaps underrated masterpiece, Shadow of a Doubt. Very good. Um, and of course, you can always find me, uh, as ever, at therealgreshenmcneil.com. <laughs> I laugh every time. I'm such a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> or at bradfordlorick.com or in any dark bar. And you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker EA Winnick. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. And our theme music, as always, is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. And we will see you next time in the horrific mindscape in which your soul is relentlessly tortured for all eternity by writhing, malevolent spirits that we like to call... Scare You! You can do that with an effect, Eric. You don't have to make that sound yourself. It's much more fun to just make it myself, though, Bradford. It's obviously more fun to make it yourself. Mm-hmm.